Just imagine, your boss tells you you have to give a presentation to the board of directors. Or maybe you're a solopreneur and you need to pitch your idea to investors. Ugh. Do your palms get sweaty and your stomach rumble? Does your anxiety soar out of control and you feel like you can't even remember your name? Together, those are pretty common responses to the idea of public speaking. My guest today coaches people on how to get through those anxieties and appear to excel at the task even if you're trembling inside. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 198. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Brendan Kumurasamy is my guest today. Brendan is the founder of Master Talk. He coaches ambitious executives and entrepreneurs to become top 1% communicators in their industry. He also has a YouTube channel called Master Talk, which provides free access to communication tools for everyone, everywhere. Hello, Brendan. Thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Of course, Dan. Pleasure is absolutely mine. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're talking today public speaking. And <laughs> if you're driving your car, don't drive off the road. Um, I think I think that scares a lot of people. So we're going to talk about what might be some sources of that fear. And I think it's a legitimate fear. Uh, and then also what are some examples of less than obvious situations for public speaking. Obviously, TED Talk is public speaking, but not all of us give those. But before we get into all of that, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to be uh, in this position of talking about, huh, speaking about speaking? That's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, for sure, Dan. It is kind of funny if you think about it. So so my story started when I was in university, Dan, slash college. I went to business school and I did these things called case competitions. Think of it like professional sports, but for nerds. So while other guys my age were like playing rugby or basketball or they're running competitively, not really my thing. I did presentations competitively. That's how I learned how to speak. But as I got older, I started coaching a lot of the students in in the college because they wanted to do better at these competitions too. And we didn't really have a coach. And I wasn't one, by the way, back then. I was kind of just helping for fun. So I was giving them insights on how to speak. And that's what accidentally started Master Talk because I realized that everything I was teaching the students wasn't available for free on the internet. So I started making videos on communication and public speaking. Then one thing led to another, and here we are today. Okay. Uh, let's go ahead and plug your th your thing, uh, Master Talk. So, what is well for so what for, uh, what platform is it on, and what is what is it designed to do? Is it a product you sell, or is it a free service? 
For sure, Dan. So, so Mass Talk is two things, a media company and a coaching business. So the first part of Mass Talk is for everybody, which is how do we create a world where every human being on earth has accessible tools on how to speak and share ideas? So that's why my Master Talk YouTube channel is really about how do we democratize this for the world? It's like the encyclopedia of communication. That's what I want it to be. So whether someone can afford a coach or not, they can go on Mass Talk and learn a bunch of information, whether they want to be a chef, whether they want to be... Uh, you know, a CEO of a company, regardless of what they want to do, they can learn how to speak. And then the second arm of Mass Talk, which is for a smaller group of people, is it's a coaching business for executives and entrepreneurs. So I train a lot of executives in small groups to help them get really good at communication. And that's the paid side of Master Talk. You've mentioned the word communication, I think, at least twice in, in a minute. And there's, I, th I think that's an important distinction to make between or maybe the reason for public speaking. The reason anybody goes to a TED Talk, probably we hope to be entertained because no one wants to listen to boring communication, but also, so entertainment value, and maybe to be seen value. I don't know about the audience at a TED Talk, but there's, there's something to be obtained. Now, whether or not it's obtained depends in some part on the listener, and that's something we can really control. But it does depend a lot on how the presenter presents the information. So if you listen to, so um, I never heard Feynman talk, but I've seen some of his clips and I've read some of his books, and the, he died, but you know, Richard Feynman, the physicist, was spectacularly engaging. You know, I could never do that level of, I just can't, I can't. <laughs> I've tried. It doesn't work. But boy, he makes you kind of want to try just because he's just that engaging where listening to someone who drones on in a monotone, you just, you want to leave as fast as possible. So there's, seems as at least two things in play and probably more. One is, presentation, how, how the presenter stands with a sense perhaps of authority and confidence and maybe even a calmness and how you do all three of those at once, maybe that's the trick, but also the knowledge behind the words to say, I am an authority on this topic. That covers the TED Talks and that covers speaking to stadiums of 50,000 people. Give us some examples of places where communication is vital. And it, go ahead. Yeah, for sure, Dan. So, so I always like to start the conversation with the following. Communication is everything. And it's not just about giving a presentation at work or getting a promotion. It's every moment of our life. It's the way that we talk to our families. It's the way that we order food at a restaurant. It's the way that we meet strangers when we travel. It's the way that we have conflicts, or rather, hopefully, conflict resolution with you know our family members and our significant others. It's every moment of our life. That's why, for me, communication and public speaking is one and the same, which is the following. How to share or convey a message in a way that achieves a specific outcome for a specific audience. But that could mean a whole bunch of things. That could mean giving a TED Talk to achieve a specific outcome of sharing your ideas with the world. Or it could be convincing your wife that Mexican food is actually a better idea than Chinese food. You're, you're still conveying an idea to achieve a specific outcome for a specific audience. Just in this case, the communication is with the smaller audience. But it's the same thing. 
is how do we leverage what we want to share to get something that we either desire, be it big or small. So with that frame in mind, what's the first thing to get us started? It honestly just starts with this question, which is how would your life change if you're an exceptional communicator? You know, the biggest problem with communication, Dan, is it's always tied with negativity and stress and anxiety, whereas I'm a big believer in having fun. So when we start to dream about our communication skills. We start to imagine a life in which we're better for it. That's when we start to, to reap in the benefits and actually take this, you know, the tactics that we'll share in this interview, the strategies a lot more seriously because it'll benefit us. Would you say part of a person's journey to becoming and I'm, as I'm, so I'm having the two thoughts. One is the, the thing I'm thinking, and the other thing is that maybe the journey doesn't actually ever end. Maybe it's a continuing growth process of perpetual refinement and, and, and honing of skills. But do you think that the first, a first act of being a successful communicator is the visualization of being a successful communicator. Right. So there's two parts to that. I would say, so the first part of your question is really, how do you define success in communication? The other part is like, is this, is there an end point? Is there an evolving process? So the first part to that is success. For me, it's very simple, Dan. Did you achieve the outcome that you were looking for, for that presentation? And you could be the worst communicator on earth. If you get the results you're looking for, I don't really have any feedback for you. So let's say you're giving a presentation at work. And you want to make, I don't know, I'm just throwing numbers out there, $10,000 in sales to this company you're presenting to you. And you're horrible. Like you make every mistake in the book. You do filler words. You go, oh, uh, blah, blah. It's so bad. And you rate and you make 10 grand. I have no feedback because you achieve the outcome that you were looking for. But if your goal is to make 100 grand and you made 15, now we have a gap to discuss. Now we have ways that we need to communicate more effectively to get what we're looking for. So that's the piece that I always think about is for me, success is all about what we want out of life. So let's say in the context of your show, which is more culinary focused, let's say somebody is a sous chef and they want to become a head chef, right? They want to get a lot better at managing teams and communicating in the back of a room, let's say for a big restaurant. I'm just throwing a random example here. Well, in the context of that, their communication skills need to be a lot sharper because they're managing a lot more people and the the number of interactions is skyrocketing. So if you don't do well, the service will go wrong. So that's one side of it. The other side, to your point, I agree, communication is a lifelong journey. Even for me, like even if I'm the expert on the call, I'm always looking to learn more. There's always a lot more to go. There's always angles and nuances. Like for example, I haven't really coached a chef before and how to communicate ideas. Right. So it's so for me, even if my principles still apply, there's still something I can learn specifically from you, from the host that I didn't really consider in the context of what you do. So, yeah, there's always something that we need to get better at. As we were talking about communication versus public speaking, I think those two terms create two very different scenarios. Public speaking, I think. I think most people think about one person on a stage talking to a lot more other people and don't think that public speaking is talking with an office coworker, fixing a problem or, talk, or making a presentation in the boardroom or at even a meeting of employees. I think that probably is technically going to be considered a public speaking scenario. 
but because there is a level of intimacy and familiarity, maybe the baggage and anxiety that goes with the term public speaking goes away. And now the person is just worried about how well am I a communicator. So um, it's funny. It's, it, the sous chef who wants to become a chef, there, there's, there's two key aspects of communication for that person. One, you have to talk to three. You have to talk to the kitchen staff in a way that they're going to want to continue to work for you. <laughs> and so we've all seen Fox TV. Yeah, I know you feel about Fox. I don't care. Uh, Gordon Ramsay is there to sell soap, and he does a magnificent job of it. However, I will say I've worked for chefs that make Gordon look like child's play. Now, that doesn't mean they should have done that, but they had earned it's a tough thing to say, and this will trigger some people. They had earned the right to be buttheads. Okay, that's another show. Um, so getting your cooks or your staff or your or your journalist at a newspaper or your wood carvers in, a, in whatever you're doing, getting them to want to do their job well and please themselves and you and the customer, that's one thing, and some of that is communication. With the wait staff. Boy, there's just notoriously hostile between kitchen and waitstaff, and there's also management. So, um, communicating well, if, which let's clarify, communicating well means communicating effectively, and that means to me, and you correct me if you th or add to this, communicating effectively is putting the picture in the speaker's head into the brain of the listener's head, where they get. 75 to 90 percent of it and they can understand they can better than that they can replicate the action to produce the expected result because understanding absolutely. is tough to how do i show you i understand something can't do it absolutely you know what i would say to that in the context of, of your industry dan i would say something more like if I was the head chef and I was in the, that person's shoes and I was looking at what does an ideal communication outcome look like in the context you just gave, I would ask myself, what does the perfect service look like? What does it feel like? What do the conversations look like? If what, like me on the best day and in my entire career, what did that best day look like when everyone was aligned? Obviously, no one, no one's perfect. Nothing's perfect in the service. But what does that ideal outcome look like? And how can I prep better for that outcome? Not just with the vegetables, not just with the meat and prepping all that food before the service begins, but more also in the sense of communication between ourselves and the people around us. And in that case, it might look like something very different. It might not be a, a keynote where you're presenting in front of everyone. Everyone's just like, okay, like, why are you speaking to us? Versus listening more effectively understanding what people actually care about, what they value, being able to give feedback outside of that service room where it's very high pressure, high stress environment where people feel really inspired to keep working for you. Because to your point, restaurant industry is one of the highest turnover rates in, in the country, right? So they, they can go work for another restaurant, go work for another place. So it's important to keep them inspired so that you're not constantly rehiring new people and constantly retraining them on how you work as a chef. So that goes back to the question, right? How would your life change if you're an exceptional communicator? For everyone in that industry, you can think about it in the frame of what you're trying to do, which is, okay, I want to be the best head chef in my, in my city. Okay, what does it take to be that person? 
I can't just yell at people all the time. Maybe during dinner service, it's okay because that's it's high pressure. Customers uh, want the food on time. They want it to taste perfectly because they're paying a lot of money, especially if it's fine dining. But if, well, what are you doing with those interactions outside of those high pressure situations? It's not like that 24-7 or else we'll all die. Obviously, it's like that a lot, but but I'm sure there's some gaps in time where we can really sit back and reflect on how to make this better for everybody. There's a, a little bit of crossover in in speaking disciplines, and I'm inventing a phrase to try to get to a point. There's a little bit of Stuart Diamond in in what we're talking about in terms of speaking to coworkers, because Stuart, I think, mostly focuses on the workplace and and how to how to get along smoothly in the work environment. Uh, and there's also uh, a lot of opportunity, I think, in Chris Voss's negotiations, never what's a, never split the difference. And in one of you know, his group, the Black Strong Group, they, they have a lot of content, and this isn't to plug them, but one of Chris's particular favorite things is tactical empathy. Try to understand... Try to put yourself in the shoes of the other person because it's not about you. It's about that person. So it's not about you, the chef. It's about the waitstaff who's going to go out to the table. And if she's crying, <laughs> that doesn't look good ever. So there's, there's ways, there's tools, other disciplines in the realm of speaking to people to get the desired end result uh, that can apply here. Uh, one of the things I think that people will say, even if they're doing, you know, with their besties in the conference room, oh no, I have to give a presentation, there is a legitimate fear. And for some people, it is almost debilitating. Do you have a sense of what causes that fear? And then how can people it takes effort, I think. How can people work through that fear to change, uh, to get the outcome they want? How would your life be better if you gave a home run presentation? Absolutely, brother. Great questions. So let's start with the first part of the fear. Where does it come from? So I've thought about this question for a while. I used to think the fear was from San Diego or Los Angeles, but my answer is, uh, has improved a little bit uh, over time. So, so let's walk through this a little bit. Where does the fear of communication begin? Naturally, it begins where we learn how to present. And what is that environment? For most of us, it doesn't take too long to figure it out. It's school, elementary, high school. That's where we start giving presentations. But here's the problem, Dan. There's three in particular. All of those problems, or rather presentations, but I also call them problems in, in high school and elementary. The first problem is they're all mandatory. We don't wake up one morning and say, hey, Dan, you want to give a presentation to have breakfast all day? Nobody says that. Right? So that's problem number one. Problem number two is every presentation is different and you don't get to pick the topic. So it's never, hey, Dan, what are you excited about? Do you want to talk about your culinary passions? Do you want to talk about cuisine? Do you want to talk about French cuisine or whatever you're into? No, you got to talk about uh, Shakespeare. And you're like, uh, who are we? Who are we shaking? What are we shaking? Do I get to talk about milkshakes? Like, you don't get it. It's really confusing. And then you think that's the worst part. There's actually a third piece here that's actually the most important, is every presentation, and it's crazy when you realize this, is tied to a punishment. 
So if you don't do a great job in school, you don't get a little pat on the back and say, hey, Brendan, dad, keep going, guys. It's good. No, you lose 30% of your grade and your future kind of falls apart in front of you. Is that the best place to learn? Not really. So what does the conclusion to this? The conclusion is we're taught to believe that communication is a chore. It's like doing the dishes and nobody wants to do that. And that's really the problem. And now the, the last piece, which is the other part of your question is, well, Brendan, okay, I get it. Uh, makes sense. Well, I hope it makes sense. Feel free to disagree. But but the key is, is like, okay, what do we do? How do we fix this? Very simple. So there's a question, right? How would, the, how would your life change? Reflect on that. But there's the other piece as well, which is understanding the following. The fear never goes away. There's always levels in which you, you'll be scared. If we were having lunch, and I'm assuming it'd be a really good lunch because you're probably a really good cook, whatever, or you probably know a good space in, in Oregon to, to visit. But anyways, let's say we're having lunch or something, and Elon Musk calls me, and he goes, hey, Brendan, I love your YouTube channel. It's great videos. Can you coach me? Would I shit my pants? Absolutely. Right? There's always a level. So what's the close? The conclusion is just this, Dan. Communication fear is like a boxing match. One side of the ring is the fear. The other side of the ring is the message. The goal is not for the fear to leave the boxing match, but rather make sure that when your fear and your message meet in the middle of that boxing match, that your message wins the match, that your message gets the knockout punch. So let's, I, I think, I like that. I think that that works. Now let's add a wrinkle to this. So we, we've gotten to, or speak, our invented fictitious speaker has gotten to pick her topic. She has passion about the subject likes what she's going to do and has accepted and embraced the fear and is working through it. And then this thing, imposter syndrome, lands on her head and now she's riddled with self-doubt. I've been studying this topic for 30 years and I don't know anything about it. Now what? <laughs> How does she work through? We've gotten all this down and then now all of a sudden we've got cold feet again and now what do we do? Absolutely. You know, it's funny, Dan, you said 30 years old. I'm not even 30. I'm not even close to 30 yet. So I'm de I can definitely speak on, on the topic. So so let's talk about imposter syndrome for a second. And, and I'm obviously credible because I started coaching CEOs when I was 22. Who in the world am I to coach people on this subject? Some people have actually, most of the people I work with today have worked longer in the bloody company than I've been alive. So here's what I want to say. Imposter syndrome is normal, but there's a way to overcome it that's really easy if you think about it from the right frame of mind. So let me go ahead and talk about this. Let's say I came to your state. Okay, let's let's say for the purposes of this argument, let's say you lived in Portland. Okay, even if you don't, let's say you did. And I came to Portland and I said, you know, uh, Dan, I'm I'm in Portland. What should I do? Like, what should I do in the city? And let's say you lived there for 20 years. You'll probably tell me. You'll say, oh, Brendan, you got to check out this restaurant. You got to go to this place you gotta go there you gotta go there and you'll probably tell me right makes sense so far pretty normal same thing if you came to montreal and you said brendan i'm in montreal i'm in the city for a week what should i do i'll probably tell you but say oh check out this chicken place unless you're vegan then don't go to the chicken place go here do that go do this and we'll probably tell each other makes sense so far but here's the catch don't you find that odd that when people ask us for directions in our city, we're super open about sharing information, even if we're not experts. We're not tour guides. At least I don't think you are. I definitely am not. My, my, my parents are not the mayor of Montreal. I barely get out of my house. I don't even know that much about the city. Yet, 
when somebody asks us about directions in our own city when they visit, we open our mouth even if we have no expertise. But to your point, there's situations where we have done the homework. We know what we're talking about, yet we don't feel qualified to share the message. Why is there a disconnect there between certain pieces of information? And the answer quite simply, Dan, is going back to what is the definition of an expert. A lot of people think that expertise means you got to have a PhD. You got to have a master's degree. That's not what expertise is, in my opinion, anyways. That's what society tells us what expertise means. But to me, being an expert is simply this, being one step ahead of the next person in that thing. In the same way, you probably know more about Oregon than I ever could. You probably know more about raising a family, being a dad, uh, starting a podcast, cooking, culinary skills, something. You probably know exponentially more than I do. In the same way, I could probably teach you one or two things about communication or public speaking. And that's really how we should see imposter syndrome. Start by serving the people you're comfortable with first. I didn't coach CEOs at the beginning. I know that sounds cool. It sounds fancy. That's how I started. When I started coaching when I was 19, I started coaching 15-year-olds. Because that's what I was comfortable coaching. I wasn't comfortable coaching people like you. I was coaching uh, people younger than me. And then I started coaching people my own age. And then I started coaching CEOs, but let me be very specific about what I mean here. I started coaching CEOs my own age because a lot of them became technology CEOs, but they didn't have a coach or money. So I started coaching them. And then I started learning what CEOs cared about. And then the age just grew up gradually over time. It was an ever-evolving process. So the quote is simply this, and I got this from Ali Gadet. If you help one person, the world will give you permission to help everyone else. Don't know who the speaker was, but that's an impressive quote. So we mentioned earlier about speaking skills being a process of learning and growing, learning and growing, and we could say that's evolving. And you have lived this process from nineteen to twenty. I'm still it's that's it, kind of a it's kind of a young age to wrap my head around. To and it's very impressive, and it's it's I'm <laughs> I'm kind of giggling about it. Um, this is a hard, it might be a difficult question. It's not difficult. Please, um, do you think there's something innate in you that makes getting coaching from you? an easy and natural thing to do, say, as opposed to, now, I, I, I know a little bit that the Gordon Ramsay we see on TV isn't really the whole story. It's a one, it's a, it's an intended manipulation of a stereotype, but let's just go with that. Hmm. I, I think most people would think that they couldn't get compassionate coaching, I'm assuming you're compassionate, you seem to be, <clears throat> they would think they couldn't get compassionate and empathic coaching from Gordon. So is, is there, is it possible that people have personality traits that endear them and lead them toward a path where others may not have this success? Hmm, that's a fascinating question, Dan. Feel free to ask me a follow-up question on this one as I chew on this one for a little bit. I, I would say we all have strengths and weaknesses. 
Okay, think of it like this. This is how it, it's kind of more of an analogy for life, but I hope I hope this lands a little bit. Randy Post says this from the last lecture. He says, "It's not the cards that are dealt, but rather how you play the game." So, what does that mean? That means in life, we're all dealt a set of cards, and the point that I really want to draw from the set of cards is those cards cannot be changed. They're not kind of they can't be redealt. So in the same way that we might have strengths, things that we're naturally inclined to be great at, there's also things that we probably shouldn't be doing with our life. That we probably shouldn't be spending time. Let's use cooking as an example. I'm the worst cook you'll ever have on your show, which is funny given the context of your your podcast. You know, my my mom and my sister cook for me. I don't do any of that. I don't know how that works. Could I be good at cooking? Sure. If I really put in the time, but I would cap because I don't have that passion. I love watching, you know, Hell's Kitchen and all that stuff, but I never, I would never cook. I'd rather just eat at the restaurant and pay whatever they, they charge me to eat great food. But, but that's the case. So there's a cap. So in the same way, you know, Brendan's not going to become an NBA player. I'm not going to be a professional athlete. It's just not my thing. I got a crooked left arm. What am I going to do in the basketball league? I'm going to get my ass kicked. So, so there's definitely areas and things that I shouldn't be doing in life. Not to say I shouldn't do it for fun, but at, at a professional level. So I definitely think that that spectrum is true for all of us in every skill. But I, what I think the best human beings do, or the smart ones, what they do, is they realize how much they don't know about the world, and they spend most of their time analyzing the cards that they're given. So while most people are kind of looking at everyone else's hands across the poker table, they say, what do you have? Do you have a house? Do you have a, are you a celebrity? Are you this? I think the smartest people just look at the cards and say, what can I do with my life? What am I innately good at? What kind of questions can I ask myself to figure that out? And, and there's a quote that, that, I, that, I, that I'm happy to share. I got this from Tony Robbins, and then I rephrased it for my own style. Tony Robbins says, the quality of our life is determined by the quality of the question that we ask ourselves about life. My version of this is if you ask one hard question about life every single day for 30 days, you'll never be the same ever again. And what that means is if you start asking yourself questions like, okay, if I gave you a billion dollars, what would you do with your time? Would you still tolerate that head chef was yelling at you? Uh, probably not. Maybe. Or maybe I would because I love it, right? So you'll start to ask these questions that are deeper and you'll get insights. So let's, let's use that in the context of my own work because self-awareness can only be taught really from ourselves. Is when I started the industry, the reason I was so confident that I was going to be successful, even if I had a lot of ages and problems where people thought I was too young earlier, was, was simply by output. I just looked at what other coaches were doing in my space and I just disagreed with 70% of what they were sharing. Because a lot of it was just sales funnels. They weren't actually sharing like practical, like juju, like what's actually getting to results. A lot of them were academics. So I said, this is not going to work. So I found an edge. So what is the principle? The principle is use comparison for what it is, which is a tool. A lot of people think comparison is the thief of joy. I disagree. I think comparison is a tool if you know how to use it. If you take a screwdriver and you try and punch it in the wrong hole, it's not going to work. But... If you use comparison as a tool to say, okay, these are the other chefs, this is what everyone else is doing, this is the time that they spent, can I sacrifice what they sacrificed to beat them or to get at the level that they've had in their careers or in their life and the families that they lead? And if the answer is yes, pay the admission and go for the ticket. And if the, the answer is no, find something else to do with your life. Does that help? Did that make sense? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think know. there's one of the things that seems wrapped up in that is a level of 
self-confidence. I th it's easy to parse word salad and say self-esteem or something else. And, it, and it, I think that in, in the world of head shrinkers, no disrespect intended, um, those words probably do mean certain different things. And I actually just don't know what those different things are. And I'm not trying to go down rabbit holes of this thing or that thing. But I think that a I think one of the traits, characteristics, aspects of a person's success is the moxie that person brings to that situation. So where in coaching a CEO at 22 years old, and it's entirely possible that you were coaching a CEO of a company of 15 people, not a CEO of a company with 150,000 people. Um, you've got a swagger. You've got a moxie. I can do this. Whereas going on the basketball court, um, even at MJ at his age now, we would both say, I ain't got this. <laughs> this, this, this is not going to happen. This is, a, this is bad. Because I'm not going to do that. And I'm older than he is, but not by a whole lot. And they just... That's that's a silly thing to do, maybe for recreation, but I don't think, I don't know. So I think that it seems the imposter syndrome is in part mitigated first by the person. I think that, that that's an important observation. Imposter syndrome, others can offer platitudes, because I think fundamentally that's all that they are. They mean well, but they're useless. Mm. The the person in that spot at that moment is facing a decision. Do I succumb to my anxiety and fear, or do I take it and my fear, and we all three of us as fists meet in the middle of this, of this figurative uh, ring, and I go out and I, well, I punch out this presentation like a rock star. And I, so that's what you, you mentioned also, self. There's, there is a point where we can't get help from anybody. It's entirely up to us. That's self-esteem, self-confidence, self-awareness, whatever you want to call it. It's you and the world, buddy. <laughs> so what are you going to do? And, and. That sounds, seems like it could be a cold, heartless statement to make that there's nothing I can do for you. When you're out on the stage, it's you and the audience, but quite frankly, there's nothing I can do for you. If you're a wrestler, this isn't my idea, by the way, it's from Vision Quest, the movie. When you're a wrestler, <laughs> you and the team, that's fine, except the team can't help you. It's you and your counterpart on the mat, and what if you's going to win? Who's going to do it? I don't know. But your team is not helpful at that time. They can give you all the moral support. They can yell and scream and cheer for you. Yay, go, Brendan. You got him. You got him. And and you might get him and you might not get him. So there's I, – I think that – I think there's value in what you said. I think there's also a time factor where part of part of the success of getting what you want 
begins with accepting the possibility that you might not get what you want, even if you tried really hard to do it. Hmm. Interesting. I agree. I agree with a lot of what you said. I think the only thing I would change, well, not change, I think it's just more of an add-on because I feel we're, we're on the same page here. I think the other piece I would add to this, Dan, is if we also do the harder thing before the real thing, the real thing becomes easier to digest. So let me give you a super simple example here. Let's say an executive comes to us and says, I have a meeting with five people and I'm really nervous about speaking to them. My solution is never, hey, you got this, jump up and down. It's like, no, we're going to simulate a much harder meeting. So I'm going to bring 10 people and they're going to be vicious with you so that it's so hard and you have to go through that pain so that when you go to that meeting, you go, oh, that meeting was so easy. So so I think it's also about doing the harder thing. Because like one thing that we didn't really talk about is, you know, it's a lot of my receipts were earned as well. Like I had coached probably, I probably at this point, geez, I don't even know what the number is. It's probably two, 300 at this point. Because I've been doing this for seven years. I'm like, because I'm not 22 anymore, right? So it's been a long time. So th- those receipts also help build confidence and dan henry says as he says competence leads to confidence it's not just about drinking a glass of water it's also going i've made the decision to do this thing so let me pursue it one other caveat i'll add as well and this won't apply for everybody but it's worked well for me for people who are a bit more mission driven and like that purpose side of argument i never started mass talk for executives that was never the goal i never like started making videos and said oh yeah i'm gonna build a business no i was i was doing really well financially before mass talk because i was a consultant at ibm that was my day job so i was fine i think it was more about i thought about the 15 year old girl and that's really the reason why i started it who can't afford a coach like she's 15 years old she's not going to relate to the 50 year old dude who has a phd in communication on YouTube. She just relates to me because nobody else is sharing this advice. So I also think the message around what you're sharing is important. It doesn't need to be for the world, but just for the way that you show up for your family, the way that you show up for the people around you. Usually a lot of whys start with who's. So I think it's very helpful to, even if it's on a smaller scale, to think about how your message could potentially impact somebody. So in the context of your industry, that might just be Hey, if I show up as the right leader, I'm going to create a, a cool working environment for my waiters, for my chefs, for my sous chefs to get along and we'll all have better we'll walk we'll walk into every day at work with a smile. Maybe that's the reason, but we got to find that little piece in the or that little needle in the haystack that actually gets us to to push this further. You know, there's right or wrong, the classic Speaker advice is, oh, 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 you got to open with a joke. <laughs> I don't know if that's actually a good idea. Um, it probably isn't a good idea. But let's talk a little bit about presentation. There's, we sort of, we sort of indicated that the, the compelling speaker is much more interesting to listen to than the monotone speaker. And even if the monotone speaker is life-altering information, if you can't stand to listen, it doesn't really matter. Comedians actually have, I think, a, a, have mastered some of the really great ones, Harlan in, in particular, the pregnant pause. You say a thing, and you know a good punchline's coming, but there's still 
if you say the thing and give the punchline, the whole delivery falls flat compared to say the thing and wait a couple of seconds, and you're sort of letting them finish the joke in their head, and they're starting to laugh before you give them the punchline, and then you deliver that last thing, and they are falling out of their chairs, laughing, laughing, laughing. Now they're entertained. So in in your coaching, it sounds like you've got the skills to get them on the stage. Do you teach them within their own personality? Because everyone is going to present a little bit differently, which is why it's fun to watch them. Some presentation skills. I think that that's an important aspect to to swaying, and I think that's what's happening. You're trying to sway the crowd. To sway the crowd, you've got to be good. So do you coach them on what does that mean to be a good presenter? Absolutely, Dan. Let, let's talk about this. So there, there's two things that we can do. One that's like an, a daily exercise that people can do. If they have kids or nieces and nephews, it's super fun. And then we can talk about presentation structure. I have an easy formula that we can just implement and people can just take to the bank. So let's start with the random word exercise. So the random word exercise is fairly simple. Every day when you wake up, pick three words like phone, casserole, curtain, just random words and create presentations out of thin air, like on the spot. So at the beginning, the exercise is really difficult because you might look at wall and go, uh, a wall is uh, a building. But the reason why this exercise is so important, and I always tell people this, if we could make sense out of nonsense, we can make sense out of anything. So that's why I love the random word exercise because you just don't worry about the failure anymore. You just take a box and you go, okay, how do I make a presentation out of the word box? And you just create it. And why it's fun to do with your family, specifically younger children, who are like 15, 10, is because they're a lot better at it than we are because they don't really think about it too much. They just do it. And that's what makes them really good at it. And then over time, you start to see a drastic improvement in the skill. Even if you just do it 10, 15 times, you'll eventually see an uptick in the way that you communicate. And that trickles over like a domino that falls to every other angle of communication. That's one part. The other part beyond the random word exercise is how to prepare for presentations in general. And to your point, I, I definitely don't agree either with the point around, uh, yes, starting with the joke. It's not always the case. It always depends on the context. So let me make it super easy. Communication is like jigsaw puzzles. You know those toy puzzles we used to play as a kid, Dan? You know, those little pieces of things they kind of put together. So when we look at puzzles, we need to ask ourselves a question, which is, when you're working on a jigsaw puzzle, which pieces do you start with first? Generally, you start with the edges because the edges are easier to find in the box. They got this little edge to them. You pick them up in the box, put them all together, and then you work your way in the middle. So I'm sure the, the thought in your mind right now is why, why in the world is Brendan talking about jigsaw puzzles? What does this have to do with anything? So, so let, me, let me answer that one. Here's the problem. We don't do this in communication and public speaking. Most of us, when we prepare a presentation, Dan, we generally do the opposite. We start with the middle first. So we shove a bunch of things in our presentations. We get to the keynote. We ramble throughout the whole thing. And the last slide sounds something like this. Uh, yeah, so, um, uh, yeah, thanks. So it's like an afterthought. Instead, what I recommend is prepare like a jigsaw puzzle, right? Start with the edges first. That means do the introduction 50 times until it's perfect. You okay, Dan? Yeah, I'm looking for something. 
<laughs> Sounds good. So yeah, so so the key is, you know, we think about puzzles. Just just practice your communication, your presentations like a jigsaw puzzle. Start with the edges. Do just your introduction fifty times. Try a bunch of different things. Try a joke. Try a personal story. Try an anecdote that defends your key idea. Do it fifty times until it's perfect. Do the same thing with the conclusion. What's a great movie with a terrible ending? Last time I checked, terrible movie. Same thing with the close. Just practice that 25, 50 times and then tackle the middle. And that will give you a lot more confidence when you present because the problem with most of us is when you present the whole thing over and over again, you don't see a lot of improvement versus just doing the introduction 50 times, which only takes an hour or so to do. You know, you mentioned something and the idea of with the puzzle starting with the outside working to the center and the center of the puzzle being the climax of the whole thing, because that last piece, man, that's like, yeah, I did it. <clears throat> and if it's a big puzzle, it's 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 a very satisfying moment. It really is. Uh, <laughs> especially if it's a hard puzzle. My daughters like to do jigsaw puzzles. There's um, the what I was looking for is a book called I think it's called Made to Stick. I forgot who wrote it, but it's a really impressive book. And one of the points they make is routinely in in presentation of ideas, generally in speaking, but sometimes also in writing. And I've seen it in, actually, in, so this is a shameless plug for, for, for something I don't own. We, we met each other through Podmatch. And a lot of the, well, this is this is kind of mean, but a lot of the Podmatch um, bios just ramble. And you have to go way down, and so you have to go to the last paragraph to find out why I should even be interested in reading all this. So the journalist phrase is they bury the lead. Mm. Instead of saying this is I'm going to this is what I'm going to tell you, come right out and say this is why you're here to listen to me talk. You've got the, there. that's the center of the puzzle. Now, let's fill in all the rest of the puzzle. We'll get to the edges so that it still feels finished with those nice, crisp, sharp corners. It's a great presentation, but you know automatically why you're here. Don't bury the lead. And I think from both in speech and in writing, it's a very common thing to do. And I think... Now, we're going to go back to school and say that those two things are intimately connected because in, the, in that classroom, for the presentation you had to give and it had zero influence on the topic and you had no control over the audience who's going to be hostile, the third graders are mean, you were taught a particular way to present and to write and it's always bury the lead. Completely agreed. I love what you shared there. I've I've heard that term before once or twice, the idea of bur burying the lead is a lot of us, we spend too much time on the middle, so it gets really messy really quickly versus trying to figure out the edges first because that's what builds momentum. I'm always a big fan of doing the easier thing first because easy gets us momentum and momentum gets us motivation to actually keep doing it. Whereas when you start right away with the middle and then it gets messy then you get lazy, then you get tired. You're like, oh, I don't want to make this better. And then we enter the same rut that we do in every other presentation that we give. 
and this strategy definitely helps avoid it. So I love the way you put it out. And that's definitely true at the platform you mentioned as well. A lot of people just ramble on and on, whereas I try. I try my best not to. Yeah, I, I'm, uh, I forgot the name of the guy who invented it. And I don't know if he listens to the show, so I'm sorry about that. <laughs> maybe you can give some lessons. to. Maybe that's your next uh, next podcast is how to write a better profile. Um <laughs> Maybe that's my niche. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Maybe I'm kidding. Um, let's take a moment out for a word from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast. Hey, everyone. Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. So I want to move for a minute from this into uh, some short answer questions that don't have much to do with speak or speeching, <laughs> um, but they're fun to listen. They're fun, fun questions. So of the five flavors, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, or umami, which one is your favorite? Does anyone pick umami? I, oh, I would yeah. say salt. Really? I would say salty. Salty is definitely my favorite. I love a good burger. I love fries with salt all over them. That's definitely uh, my favorite for sure. By by a long shot, actually, out of the five. I think unofficially, I haven't tallied this. Um, sweet and salty are probably neck and neck, and umami is... I, I, I think all three, bitter, sour, and umami, are probably relatively equally tied for last. What does umami taste like? It's a good question. I actually did a whole <laughs> podcast about that. So, really? it's, so you think I'd have a better answer. It's, it, it's common. It, it, so what umami does is sort of brings all the flavors together, but it's also its own fifth flavor. And it's, it, it like has what food a kind is of a, it common in? Most commonly, it's it's a natural occurring. It's kind of like MSG, and I'm like, oh my gosh, people are panicking. Except, so it's just single sodium and glutamate, and that's common in in most mushrooms. That's why mushrooms, if you saute them in butter, yes, it's butter, and butter tastes good. But there is the the, the thing I think is the best way to describe umami is it makes the food taste like more than the food. There's some like like a super flavor going on. And that's why well-cooked mushrooms, they just like, oh, man, just, they fill your whole palate with flavor. I think that's probably the best way to describe umami. So certain seaweeds have it. That's one of the reasons people like sushi so much is because there's an umami thing happening there. Mm, fascinating. That, like, that's why I asked you, because I'm like, I'm fascinated by guests who would like pick that. You, and you're the expert and, and you're like, like going through all the ropes to explain it yourself. So that's why I was, I was fascinated why people would pick that. Because it tastes good. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite food? Definitely my mom's cooking. I mean, I just had it actually. It's a pork curry with rice and tomato chutney. Nice, nice, nice. What's your least favorite food? <sighs> that's a tough one. Least favorite. It's probably something that has no taste, like something gross. Like uh, like something. I mean, I I'll probably lose some fans. I don't know. It's probably something vegetarian or something. <laughs> I, don't 
I don't know. So for us, what is my least favorite? That's probably the hardest question I've ever gotten asked before. It's probably like expired milk. There, let's go with that. What sound do you love? The sound of music. I really like an artist named CK. I just like listening to him in the morning. It's, it's really nice music. What sound do you hate? What sound do I hate? Probably screeching. I don't know if this even counts in the question. I hate people complain. People are rude to waiters. That sound always drives me nuts. Like, oh, my steak is this or whatever. I don't know. It just pulls me the wrong way. <laughs> what gets you excited? What gets me excited? Spending time with family, super exciting. Uh, doing great things like uh, bi- building, you know, grander things like missions and stuff. That's super exciting. What turns you off? What turns me off? Definitely people complain. What's your favorite food indulgence? I really like tiramisu. I don't have a lot because it's dangerous for me to have it too much. That and baklava, if it's done correctly. Yeah, those two are probably my indulgences. Done correctly is an important distinction. Done poorly and it's it's detestable. Yeah, it's it's detestable in both cases. Yes, true enough. Uh, so you've mentioned it, but how can people follow you? Absolutely, brother. Well, this is a great conversation. Thanks for having me, man. So, so two ways to keep in touch. The first one is the YouTube channel. Just go to Master Talk in one word, and you'll have access to a ton of free videos. And the second way is my website, rockstarcommunicator.com. I do a free training on Zoom for communication every few weeks. People will register for that for free and enjoy it. Cool. All right, so I... We're getting close to an hour. Do you have time to hang out for a little bit? I want to do one more uh, segment. I'm going to call it the chef's table. Yep, absolutely. Fantastic. All right. Well, um, let's say goodbye here, and but we're not actually going to leave. So anyway, well, I'll figure I'll figure it out. I'll edit it in somehow. <laughs> Sounds great, brother. Thanks for the time, man. This is super fun, Dan. Uh, me too. Thanks for reaching out. I, I enjoyed this a lot. Thanks very much. Yeah, likewise, man. It's super fun. I'll talk to you later. All right. Take care, bro. Bye-bye. All right, folks. That's going to do it. First... I need to correct an error I made. I am not, in fact, older than MJ. He's a year and a half older than me and would handily whip me in basketball. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you being here. And thanks also to my Patreon supporters. Brendan's YouTube and website links are on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 198. The Chef's Table portion is up on Patreon in the Members section. You can find the link to become a Patreon supporter at culinarylibertarian.com slash support. Episode 200 is upcoming, and that starts the next 100 episodes. That's kind of exciting. I have a special episode planned for 200 and some guests after that that are very interesting. I think you're going to like hearing them. I mentioned Podmatch in the interview. Podmatch is a good tool for finding podcast guests or, in the case of Brendan, finding podcast hosts. Subscribe to the service, and in some cases, you can earn cash for booking matches. Check them out and get the details at culinarylibertarian.com slash podmatch. 
Next week's episode might be a miss, or it might be a short man-on-the-street-style show. It kind of depends. I'm going to be out of pocket for a few days. Have a good week, keep those tomatoes watered, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.